Hello and welcome to episode four of Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And in this one, we talk about sex, baby, with Dr. Tisha Morgan. If you have children in the house, you might want to put some earplugs in their head. She has a shit ton of degrees and associates and doctorates all covering the basics of human sexuality. And I have it on good authority that she's also engaged in the act herself on a couple of occasions. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the psychology of sexual satisfaction. We're going to find out what sexual satisfaction should mean for you and transform your perspective on sex, masturbation, and creating an unstoppable sex life for you. This is going to be one to remember. Listen up. Morgan, superhuman sex therapist. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, I know we started off with the pun, let's talk about sex. It must be something that a lot of people, I'm going to assume, and please understand there's an assumption here, that there are some people that love to talk about sex, and there are some people that find it the most awkward topic in the world to talk about. 100%. And so being a sex therapist, you must obviously get to see both sides. But I'm curious, just to start the conversation, your journey into sex therapy land, like how did you get involved in the field? That's a good question. Uh, I was doing my master's and I was doing a lot of my presentations on like the ideology of fetishism and like how porn has evolved throughout the ages and the money shot has changed and all these sorts of things. And one of my professors was like, "Uh, you know, you seem pretty interested in this. Maybe you should specialize. But I didn't know that was even an option. Like growing up, nobody tells you you could. So light bulb moment, of course, if you're going to specialize in anything in psychology, why not make it the most, my opinion, the most interesting facet of it? So it just kind of flowed from there. So naturally evolved. So you and again, I'm cautious how I ask this question. You've always had a natural interest in sex. Yeah, I just thought, I think maybe part of me enjoys making people uncomfortable or used to when I was yes. younger. Yeah, I get that. So I didn't have a lot of, I guess, boundaries, stigma around it yeah. or those sorts of things. So if, if it got brought up, I would say, yeah, yeah, let's talk about this more. So I just found it was easy for me to talk about. Yeah. So I guess it was easy exploration from there. I think it was a little bit more difficult for my parents to wrap their head around okay. at first. I, I think for years, my mom would just tell people, oh, she's, she's you know, doing her doctorate in psychology. Um, but she wouldn't say like, she's specializing in sex therapy or those sorts of things. But then years and years later, they were, you know, the MCs at my book launch party on blowjobs. So they've come a long way. You've read a book on blowjobs. I did. Yeah. It's called Heads Up. Heads Up. Just on Felicia. Great name for a book. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, we had a big launch party in Vancouver. It was fantastic. And my mom and dad were on the front of the stage making blowjob jokes and, you know, calling out numbers. You know, we have 237. Who's next? What do we have? Oh, a package of vibrators. Who would like it? So we've wow. come a long way. Okay, cool. Well, that's, yeah. So that's interesting. So it wasn't something you had identified prior to going into your study for psychology? No. Had it, it been just... a theme in your life up until that point? Or you just noticed that you like to talk about things that made people feel a little bit uncomfortable? Maybe that was it. Yeah. Okay. I like to debate yeah. as well. So I'm that kind of person. So growing up, it would be about like politics or religion or so sex just kind of fell into that. Okay. So you're a master debater now. Yeah. (laughs) Well played. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was a dad joke. I'm a three and a half year old. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed. I've I've got a pass. I've got a day pass for this. So in your, in, in your world, like what does it mean to be sexually satisfied? Hmm. That's actually a really good question. I think... Because I'm going to assume that most people yeah. seek out sexual therapy because on some level, like, they're not either not satisfied or there's a level of dysfunction that is providing a dissatisfaction 
Definitely. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I would definitely say so. So it could be individual, like an individual might come in and have worry about um, how they're satisfying their partner. So maybe they're satisfied, but they don't feel like their partner is. Or like, let's say a man that has premature ejaculation and thinking like, I really need to last longer in order to be a better uh, lover or a better partner. So they might come in for that satisfaction piece, even though maybe for them they feel okay. Um, but yeah, definitely for couples and a lot of them are on communication, like they're not getting what they need or what they want, whether it's quantity or quality, and they're figuring out ways how do I communicate this effectively within a relationship dynamic so a lot of that for sure so does sexual satisfaction remain something that is physical in nature or is there also a, a psychology to sexual satisfaction as well oh definitely so much mental I think the physical part is just a small portion of it you, you, okay, so that's interesting. So what, when you look at the psychology of sexual f- satisfaction, is there a framework? Like, is there almost like a checklist of things that we should be either aware of? Because I'm going to assume everyone's different. Right. You know, and everyone's checklists and tick boxes are going to be different, you know, different sizes, depths and quantities. Yeah. But I'm curious if there's a, like a structure to understanding the psychology of sexual satisfaction. I don't know if there's like a checkbox necessarily because everyone's so vastly different. Um, but I think satisfaction is... Um, looking at ways physically and emotionally and psychologically and intimately that you can find satisfaction. So looking at all different kind of realms um, that you find connection and pleasure. And if you're lacking in any of those kind of areas, then yeah, there's going to be an issue. And essentially you mentioned porn before and, you know, I've read dozens of articles how porn is changing the landscape of how we, we, we relate sexually, you know, to each other uh, yes. and also to ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if the, the advent of the internet and access to pornography is actually impacting the way people are either seeking or think that they need to be satisfied. Yes. So I would say I'm not anti-porn in any capacity. I think that it does have its place and it's used by a vast majority of people, you know, especially within North America, across the planet even. Um, And it can have its place, especially for couples and uh, women and men that need um, help exploring their body and finding out ways to find pleasure and all those sorts of things. It can have it can be a wonderful tool. That being said, yes, porn does shape how we have sex, how we view sex what we think um, intimacy is, what we think the opposite sex wants for pleasure. Um, So yeah, it definitely changes the landscape. It becomes, or throughout the years, it's like the money shot, which I had mentioned, would be like the shot that the porn industry, let's say, is trying to get on the conclusion of this, um, I guess, like video, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before it might just be um, on penovaginal intercourse, if we're talking about like heterosexual porn, for instance, it might just be on um, penovaginal intercourse and a shot of that, then it might be like a man achieving orgasm. Then it might be seeing a man achieve orgasm um, through ejaculation. Then it's where is the ejaculate happening? Then is the ejaculate happening in a specific area, like on a woman's face? How much is she liking that? And then is there aggression involved in it? Like the evolution of that. Right. And then our sex education, because our youth nowadays, especially like young boys, um, young girls, they look at this and they think that this is this is truth. So that becomes their sex ed and the myths that are perpetuated within it. I mean, it's Hollywood, right? Yeah. It's not actually what's occurring. So is, are you seeing the early stages of how pornography and its evolution is actually changing the framework of the psychology of sexual satisfaction? 
Yeah, definitely. And do you think it's a problem? Do you think it's something that needs to be addressed? I do. I think especially within our uh, sexual education system. So like when we're teaching our youth about sex and sexuality, I think we've come at it very much from a scare tactic. Like it's going to get you pregnant and you're going to get STIs and yeah. you know you should just avoid it or abstinence only programs in the States, so which have like been shown not to work. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like it's now just, the war on sex. Yeah, yeah, it's not happening. It's not working. Yeah. So we need, you would never teach a course on food by starting with like, these are all the ways you're going to get food poisoning. <laughs> That's just not what you would do, but that's what we do with sex. So I think we need to completely reshift really it, yeah. right? And then we need to teach about, like, you know, in mainstream pornography, for instance, you might see these things. Like a woman can orgasm from penovaginal intercourse easily in every position and yada, yada, when in reality that's not necessarily the case. So how we think we need to use that as a teaching tool to talk about the myths that are perpetuated and... Those sorts of things. So I, I think it's fair to say we've come a long way as a society when it comes to you know the subject of sex, of sex uh, and its taboo nature. But I'm curious, you know, in the past up until now, and even now in some in some cultures in some countries, there's been a lot of stigma around sex and also specifically you know around masturbation. Mm-hmm. And I know the origins of that stigma is going to be vast and varied depending on where people are from. But I'm curious, based on your perspective, you know, from your experience, where do you think that stigma you know is born? On masturbation. Oh, that's hard. I want you to do a masturbation sex. Yeah, masturbation. We talked a bit about sex. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah, on the masturbation yeah. front. Yeah. I don't know. I think the Victorian era really did not help us on that. I mean, there was pioneers like Kellogg's, for instance, like Kellogg's cornflakes. He was a doctor and a major pioneer saying that, you know, uh, masturbation was bad. It was going to cause blindness and a whole host of other horrible things. So if we could just get all of our youth eating bland food, then because spicy food, of course, causes you to have a high libido and want to masturbate. That just, of course, makes sense. So uh, we'll just feed all of our youth a bunch of bland food and then they'll stop having this desire to masturbate. So he develops things like Kellogg's cornflakes or the graham cracker, for instance. Oh, my God. To help, you know, just like just feed your youth all of these things for yeah. breakfast and then they'll stop masturbating because, of course, they're horrible things. So all of this, if we look back from the Victorian are all these myths that were perpetuated around the cause of it, I think we really haven't gotten out of. I would say I get probably at least 10 emails a week from people, a lot in like, a lot from India, but all over um, the country asking like, I need to stop masturbating. Is it going to cause me to go blind? Is it making me lose my hair? Is it like all of these things are still very much wow, yeah, ingrained. So where it actually comes from, I think probably a multitude of different areas. I don't think I'm ever going to look at a box of Kellogg's cornflakes oh, exactly the same again. I know. Or the graham cracker. The graham cracker, yeah. Yeah, okay. those s'mores. Yeah. They would, <laughs> they, they would be appalled well, if they knew actually, what we were doing like, with, with them. I remember the first night of s'mores, that was actually quite a sensual experience because it was, you know, it was warm warm and yeah. yeah we'll just move right along but uh, <laughs> so look I think it's fair to say by now most people have uh, at least heard whether not they've researched it that sex is actually quite therapeutic it's actually very good for us mm-hmm. you know not yeah. just from the perspective of evolution and, and reproduction and survival of our species there are physical you know as well as, well as mental uh, and health and even maybe spiritual benefits when you look at tantra and and how that's practiced so I'm curious from your perspective what are some of the top benefits that people receive from having a healthy sex life? Mm. I think on a biological sense, there's tons, especially if uh, sex is equating to orgasm. So the release of positive endorphins, oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, those sorts of things. It can be a sleep aid and help you sleep. It can reduce stress and anxiety. So from a biological stance, wonderful. I think from a psychological intimacy stance, if it's good sex you're having, healthy sex that you're having, or bonding sex that you're having, that can create a whole 
you know, host of wonderful things as far as like the building of love and connection and, you know, which I think we're very starved with in our society. Um, so yeah, a whole host of positive, amazing benefits. So with that, you believe that, you know, good sexual connection and good sexual, um, practice is, is, would you say it's important or critical when it comes to a strong relationship? I would say critical. Yeah, not just important. I mean, I do have couples that maybe have sex once every three or four years, and they're kind of just best friends, and they're fine with that, and that's okay. So I think the, the quantity is necessarily a, a moot point, as right. long as both people are actually satisfied with what is occurring when it occurs, right. and the level of what is occurring. It doesn't even have to be penetrative intercourse, right? Especially if erectile dysfunction is in the picture, or a woman's going through menopause, and it's, and it's like painful, or a woman has vaginismus or dyspareunia. So maybe penetration isn't an option, and that's okay. But what is the level of intimacy that you're connecting on in a variety of different ways? That doesn't have to be so narrowly focused. Right. As long as they're both satisfied, that's all yeah. that matters. So I guess that then a lot of people would assume, ask the question, so how often should I be having sex? Right. Which you kind of alluded to is, is it's kind of, you know, it's how long's a piece of string? Right. It varies so greatly. And I always say, like, I always hate the word normal. Right. I know what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly. Yeah. So no. Well, like that. No meter stick yeah. for anybody else. Just like, are you happy? Is your partner happy? Are you satisfied? Great. It doesn't matter the number. So is it fairly safe to assume that there is a stereotypical scenario that people come to you where there's a man who's just never getting enough, always wants more, and there's a woman that just feels constantly pestered for sex uh, and is in some cases making up situations and excuses to, you know, to validate her desire not to have sex. Now, in a situation like that, like, how, how do you approach that? Right. Yeah. I would say that happens a lot. Sometimes yeah. it's switched and it's well, yeah, the woman that has a higher I said, libido. I was yeah, of course. Yeah. The air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yes, that does happen a lot. And I think it's really talking about a lot of new research on female sexuality and libido because a lot of women come in and they say, I'm broken. You know, the air quotes. I have a low libido. I don't desire sex. There's something wrong with me. But then when you actually break it down and normalize it for them, there's usually really nothing wrong with them. So, I mean, Masters and Johnson, they were big sex researchers back in the day. I think they even have a TV show based on their research today. Um, and they came up with something called the human sexual response cycle. So they said for men and women, there's, you know, there's some stages on it. There's, you know, an arousal stage or there's a want, like a desire to have sex. And then there's an arousal stage. Men get erections, women get wet. There's an orgasm. And then there's some plateaus and stuff in there. And they say, this is for men and women. Well, Dr. Lori Barado and Dr. Rosemary Basson, two researchers in Vancouver out of UBC, which are wonderful. They've been doing so much research on uh, female desire and libido and mindfulness techniques. And what they found um, in simplistic terms is that for a lot of women in long-term relationships, so outside of that honeymoon stage, right, where everything's wonderful, rainbows, butterflies, um, the first two stages can actually be reversed, meaning that a woman necessarily isn't walking around with this horniness, like I just can't wait for my partner to get home so I can rip his clothes off. But if a partner initiates for whatever reason and they agree to have sex, then after sex and intimacy has begun and foreplay has begun and the body starts responding physiologically, then the brain might kick in and be like, all oh, right, I do want this or I do like this. This is enjoyable. We should probably do this more often. Then maybe there's an orgasm, maybe not. And then there's kind of like a resolution. So they're like, well, if, if women aren't walking around with this inherent horniness, why are they even you know, agreeing to have sex or initiating sex? So they created this bubble graph. So in the middle, it'll be like, reasons women have sex. If it's a big bubble, a lot of women said that answer. Small bubble, small percentage. There'd be a big bubble up here that's like, my partner did the dishes and cleaned the house. 
Another one over here is like, oh, I've been going to the gym. I lost a little weight, feel a bit better about my body or myself. Another one over here is like, oh, I've had a little too many glasses of wine. I'm feeling kind of tipsy, horny, drunk. Another one over here is like, oh, it's just been a while and I want to have some intimacy or some connection with my partner. And then there's like a tiny little bubble in the corner that says I'm horny. And they found for <laughs> women, um, a lot of that is around the menstrual cycle. Wow. So it's almost like the body's way of being like, sperm, please. Like, I'd like something. Yeah. yeah. So they said some women recognize that little two to three day window. Other okay. women, foosh, right over their head. Right. So really, and I'm trying to condense this, of, there are tons of research, but really it's looking at reasons that women initiate sex. Because a lot of women, if they're just looking for that horny piece, yeah. then they think they're broken because they're either not recognizing it because they're on birth control, they're pregnant, they're going through menopause, they're stressed, or they do recognize it, but it's only a day or two. And then they didn't grab that and use it to initiate sex. And then the rest of the days, they might just take it or leave it. So they think that there's something wrong with them. So it's really looking at the, I think, the research around female sexuality and drive and desire and libido um, for those women and helping their partner understand it. So they're also don't think that their female partner's broken. Right. Do a lot of women identify also with with assuming that they're broken because they can't orgasm either through penile penetration or even just in, in general? Yes, definitely. Again, we talk about the mainstream pornography yeah, and yeah. perpetuating the notion of, yeah, so a lot of women will come in and say, well, there's something wrong with me because I can't orgasm through penetration. It's like, well, the vast majority of women don't Was it like 80% or something? Is yeah, it something I don't know like? the newest statistic. I want to say it's probably in the 70s. Okay. Yeah, but uh, most women don't. So the most women are clitorally focused. Yeah. Not that you can't have a G-spot or A-spot or U-spot. Or, I mean, there's tons of ways that women can orgasm, but vast majority is clit focused so again normalizing that and foreplay or you know during sex is important so what would be a great piece of advice for maybe you know a woman who might be listening to this who identifies as being that 70 percent who you know who doesn't either doesn't orgasm through penile penetration or doesn't orgasm at all like what do you think is a a good right next step or a good first step for them to start on the journey to discover whether or not it is something that they can achieve for themselves in a healthy way um usually it is focusing on what are your views and around masturbation. Do right. you masturbate? Okay. Because if you don't have a roadmap over your own body, how are you supposed to teach your partner yeah. what you like or what you need? So masturbation is key. If they don't masturbate, then spending some therapy sessions on yeah. why is that, the origin of it, is it religion, stigma, etc. Um, so that would be one kind of uh, avenue of it. And then if they do masturbate and they're still not getting there, then obviously resources. Um, there's an amazing program online called OMGS, and it's I think it was developed through the Kinsley Institute. And uh, it's an educational program teaching women how they can orgasm. Is that the one with the app where you can actually stroke the app? I have... Played. Have you seen this? Well, I thought you were going to say, I played this. I played with the app. Right. Yes, i somewhere there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So they use like biofeedback on women to see fantastic. how they it climax. Was and, it was excellent. Yeah. So I'll send women there as yeah. opposed again to like mainstream and stuff. And that's OMG, yes. OMG, yes, it's called. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then if they're like, let's say in the city, then there's uh, classes, like live classes that you can go to that are very well run. So uh, like actually classes to teach women how to orgasm yeah to teach you a variety of things so I think the last one I went to was like the art of male hand something it was basically like how to give a hand job and it would be like there would be a massage table at the front and a man on the massage table and then a body worker running the class and she would be like this is what I call the barber pole this is what I call the octopus (laughs) with a live demo with a live demo so she 
she's, you know, teaching in front of you. And some people sit and take notes, other, you know, and ask questions. Other people people just sit in the back and like, (laughs) don't say a word and then leave as soon as it's over. But it's very well run. It's very educational. It's not so money. That's so forward thinking. Yeah. So they'll have classes on like female G-spot orgasm and how to accomplish it. And then they'll be like, let's say a woman on the massage table and they'll be like, see how I'm using my fingers and the curvature to help the woman climax in front of you so you can learn. So people are open to those things. I'll send them to those places. And then lastly, if that's still not working, then uh, I'll send them sometimes to a body worker or a sexual surrogate. So that would be somebody that would work with them hands-on to help them achieve their goal. Right. So obviously in sex therapy, I don't touch anyone. So it's kind of that like next layer up. Right. So I might send a woman there that's never had an orgasm and she would work with the body worker through deep breath and mindfulness and meditation. And then the body worker would help touch that woman until she's able to reach climax so that she knows how to do it herself. So there's a a wide array. That's fantastic. Is there any element with that suggestion you, you just made where uh, there's tantric practices that are, that are brought in like Kundalini, you talk about breathing Kundalini in Tantra. Is that, is that a part of? There are some people in Vancouver that practice that for sure. So if the clients are open to that, then they can definitely try that avenue for it for sure. Okay. So yeah, it's all kind of their, you know, level of comfort, I guess. So the most G-rated would be like a book, maybe the OMGS, and then the farther end would be the tantric or the body workers. Okay, right. Yeah. And like stress and sex, you know, um, uh, I found it really interesting when I discovered that cortisol, the effect that cortisol has on testosterone, the effect that cortisol has on, you know, estrogen. Yeah. Uh, and it's it seems quite natural for us not to want sex when we are stressed. Yes. And I'm going to assume that, you know, there are a lot of people that are leaving, living increasingly stressful lives that are having increasingly less sex, but looking at the sex as the problem and not the stress. Definitely. So what do you suggest to people in those situations where, you know, perhaps you know, at the point where they're not fully satisfied with their sex, their sex life and the health yeah. of their sex, but maybe they've got to a point where they realize, well, you know, shit, I'm really busy. I'm working all the time. Maybe the sex isn't the problem. It's the stress. Like what yeah. is a good first step for someone who's been able to identify that stress is actually the thing that's preventing them from having a great sex life? Right. No, that's really important. I think um, often when, whether it's a couple, individual, male, female that comes in, we try to look at like three major categories that could be contributing to the problem, whether it's uh, low libido or erectile dysfunction, it doesn't matter. So we look at the biological things, we look at the behavioral, and we look at the psychological. So uh, usually I would run through the um, kind of biological and the behavioral causes that you know could be affecting what they came in to say there's something yeah, right. wrong or whatever it may. And once we check off all of those boxes, often it lies in the psychological category, which is, like you say, the stress component. They're suffering from depression, anxiety, high levels of stress, um, those sorts of things. Things. So then it's lo- working with a therapist that specializes in stress reduction, anxiety, and depression. Um, so usually by the time I get to that court category, we do a few sessions, and then I try to work from a holistic approach. So then I'm like, all right, you should see this therapist, or right. you need to do some EMDR therapy to work on the trauma that's contributing to the anxiety or whatever it may be. So um, that can be a big piece for sure of EMD what... EMD therapy. Yeah. EMDR. So it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Right. That's typically for people who experience trauma like post-traumatic stress disorder hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes, and the trauma could be like, we think immediately like war vets or, you know, car crash victims or those sorts of things, but it could be even trauma that has been related to, um, a sexual event from their past, obviously like, um, things like rape or sexual abuse, or it could be something like somebody broke up with you or left you and you've really not, you feel stuck and you're not able to move on and you're in that place. Because for some people, it's important to point out if they don't have the psychological tools to, to regulate the emotions, you know, and the, 
the situation they're in when they have a breakup. For some people, that's as traumatic as having a death, experiencing oh. a death. Or, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, we say divorce. It could yeah. be as traumatic as a death of yeah, an immediate absolutely. family member. Yeah. So if you're not dealing with that trauma, then I'm sure, yes, you're not wanting sex or your penis is not working. That just makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I also, I've got a huge fascination in sex uh, for a whole range of reasons, but um, which we'll, we'll move into. But one of the things that I found really interesting is about, is the biological or the biochemical consequences of orgasm, both in man and woman, mm-hmm. and the physiological response in that situation. You know, because obviously with when we mix oxytocin and estrogen, it, it promotes this desire for cuddling and, and, and nurturing and talking. Right. But when we combine, you know, oxytocin, which is released obviously with men and women at orgasm with, yeah. with, with testosterone, it can also have an analgesic effect. Yes. Whereby it can actually put a man to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, and again, I've heard this so many times and I talk about this from stage when we talk about using sex as, um, you know, as a therapeutic tool. It creates this, this almost like unwinnable situation where you've got a woman that, you know, achieves orgasm and right. she wants to sit there and cuddle and we have a great conversation and talk. <laughs> you know, she wants to use up her 90,000 words in the day and then you've got the man who's like orgasm and he's literally falling asleep and the woman's like well now you've got what you want you just want to go to sleep right, right. You know, and it's often misjudged you know as as well I've got what my needs are met now I'm just gonna doze off and mm-hmm. whereas in reality the there's actually there's a huge biological case or biochemical case that says look you know we're not doing this deliberately mm-hmm. so in in situations like like have you ever like what would you say to couples out there that are presented with these kind of circumstances and that would give them at least a little bit of an understanding of how to move through this without it creating conflict. Well, I think I would describe just how you did. I think you described it perfectly. So it's, yeah, it's the psychoeducation (laughs) behind it. It's like, is that really necessarily the cause or intent of what is happening? Or is this like some psychoeducation that needs to happen with regards to the biological Because I've shared this, right? And I was like, gentlemen, we have an excuse. And everyone laughs. And then the women are like, it's just an excuse. (laughs) Uh, But it is a truthful situation, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm not just making this shit up. You're not making stuff up, no. But then I would work with couples to say, okay, now can we um, now find a time, whether it's maybe after, sex or, or, you know, the next day or whatever to discuss things that you might want. Because I think um, discussion afterwards is also important. Like, oh, yeah. what did you enjoy? What yeah. did you like? What did you want more of? How did you feel? Like all those things that, like you say, sometimes, you know, women maybe would like to poke at. Yeah. Men do too. But um, of course, there no needs to be time and yeah. space for that. So can we arrange for that? So if he does fall asleep right afterwards, then what is that emotion for you? Well, that's interesting. So is there such a thing as a sexual debrief? Oh, for sure. I Have think. you got a framework? Like, is there I something that we could, we could share with the listeners? Like, because if you were going to obviously be starting to explore the, the health of your sexuality, mm. I honestly couldn't think of something better than at the end of a, your, your sexual intercourse, you sit down and you do not a, you know, a mild form of a debrief where you're like, okay, right. right how do we go? Well, you know, what was our objective? Right. How did we get there? You know, you know, yeah. what was it that got us there? What worked? What didn't? What, what, what didn't? Okay. How can we improve next time? Is that becoming too clinical? Is that taking away from the, you know, the, the romantic nature of what sex is supposed to be in a relationship? I think a lot of people feel that way because okay. they'll come in and they'll just say, well, my partner should just know what I want. My partner should just know how to touch me or we've been together for 30 years. If he or she doesn't know by now then, or I've said it a million times and their partner's just like, Whoosh. I'm like clueless. I don't understand. So part of my role as a sex therapist is to get them talking in different ways. 
without feeling like, you know, I've said this a million times or I'm angry or how could you not know this or just maybe embarrassment around even verbalizing it. So I guess it's more clinical in my office for sure because I'm trying to encourage people to do that. Um, But then I'll give them homework to do that outside of session. So like after that happens, maybe answer these three or four questions. You know, it doesn't have to be as soon as, you know, someone's had an orgasm and you're laying next to each other all sweaty. It could be the next day or even the next week um, when you feel more comfortable. And it doesn't have to be sitting and staring at each other, you know, because sometimes that can be hard. So maybe it's while you're driving in the car. So you're both facing forwards and there's music in the background. You know, so just like how can we facilitate a space to allow this to happen, especially with fantasy talk, because people, I think, find it really difficult to talk about what they want to need in a fantasy realm. It's such a vulnerable place to go. So how do we stimulate that fantasy talk without... You know, well, that's a great place to go because I, I guess how do you simulate that fantasy talk when perhaps some of those fantasies could be quite threatening, you know, for the other partner? Right. Now, I suppose the distinguishing feature we have to put here is it's a fantasy, mm-hmm. and just because it's a fantasy doesn't necessarily mean that someone wants to live it out. But Very it true. is a fantasy. Very true. And but there might be the there might be the possibility they might want to live it out. But so how do you handle the situation when you've got two people that are mutually exploring both fantasies? But one is perhaps afraid of sharing. Uh, well, I want to have a you know a threesome with you know with, with you and your best friend, or or with right. you and or with two girls or two guys, or right. in a situation like that. How how do you broach conversations like that in a way that whereby the conversation doesn't create more problems mm-hmm. than, uh, than than what you're trying to do in the first than the solution you're looking for? Right. Well, I think there's a lot of like cute little things that you can do. Like I'll make people do an email back and forth where one writes a couple sentences and then the other adds a couple sentences and they keep you know adding onto a fantasy that they've created together so you can slowly like and slyly slip some things in that you would like. So there's some like little tools that you can do but in general in the office how I broach it to make it easier is I talk about um, sexual stigma or sexual schemas and um, it, the theory is that there's four of them it's called give take allow and receive give take allow and receive yeah and it was based off of uh, Betty Martin's wheel of consent and then it just kind of has evolved since then so what it is basically is um, the theory is that everybody is one of these four for the most part it doesn't mean that you can't find pleasure in all four of these categories but that you know you find the most fantasy or the most pleasure out of one of these four now for example give and take allow receive. Let's say someone's a giver by nature. That means that they get the most sexual pleasure out of giving pleasure to their partner and watching their partner have pleasure. Like that's really what turns them on, right? So let's say I'll use another heteronormative example, but let's say there's a man and a woman and there's a man going down on a woman giving her oral sex. And let's say she's being very flamboyant over how much she loves this. Like she's having multiple orgasms, she's throwing pillows, all these sorts of things, right? Regardless if he has an erection, regardless if they have penetrative sex, regardless if he even has an orgasm, he's going to view this sexual encounter as something very wonderful because it's feeding his internal schema, right? Now, she's a receiver by nature. Now, when you say schema, for those who are listening who don't understand that term, what does schema mean to you? So it's kind of like your sexual, I guess, um, base, where you live, where your fantasy world is, where you get the most pleasure, where your home base, I guess, kind of is, how you view the world or how you look. the foundations of your sexual psychology. Thank you. Okay. That's a better way of saying it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So now, if she's a receiver by nature, that means she gets the most sexual pleasure out of receiving 
receiving pleasure and having the focus be mostly kind of on her and her pleasure, she's also going to view this counter as something very wonderful. They fit together like a puzzle piece. They have what we call chemistry, kind of right off the bat, right? But now if we take this woman out and we replace her with another woman, let's say a woman who's also a giver by nature. That's where just she core fundamentally fits. It doesn't matter how amazing he is with his tongue and fingers. His little black book of tricks really doesn't really matter. She could be lying there thinking, oh God, he's been down there for a while. Should I just fake it already? Oh, I forgot to call my sister. What should I pack for lunch tomorrow? Like she's just not in it. Her brain, she's not comfortable in that position. That's not really what turns her on. So now she wants to go down on him. She wants to give him oral sex because she's a giver. That's really what's going to turn her on. So now she starts to go down on him and he's sitting there going, oh God, I hope I don't lose my erection. Oh God, I hope I don't lose my erection. So they're just not fitting together well. They don't have the same kind of chemistry, right? Just out of the get go, out of the gates. So the other one is a taker and an allower. So if you're, if you're seeing a continuum, for instance, a taker would be at one end and an allower would be at the vast opposite. So a taker I describe as someone who's aggressive. Now, this doesn't have to be punch in your face BDSM aggressive, yep. but somebody who's very much driving the scene. They are in the driver's seat. They are deciding speed, br- direction, pressure, type, location, positioning. Like they are running what is happening here, yeah. right? They are taking pleasure for their pleasure. Right. Now, the allower is on the opposite end. They are very much in the passenger seat. Yeah. They're very passive. So it doesn't mean they have to be complete starfish and just lie there and not say anything. But they get the most turned on when their partner is taking them and using them. And they can see that their partner is using their body for their pleasure. So they fit together really well. They have what we call great chemistry. So usually when a couple will come in and we start talking about fantasies, we'll describe the different schemas and they'll say, where do you fit? Like, you know, when when you've got five minutes and you're going to pound one out in the shower and you go to that (laughs) go-to fantasy, you know, what is that fantasy? What role are you playing there? What is that because everyone's got a couple that they kind of on the highlight reel right yeah. the so, bank. exactly yeah. exactly yeah. so because everyone will be like well i think i'm this or maybe in my relationship i play this dynamic yeah but just because that's the role you play in your relationship doesn't mean that's your actual fundamental kind of fantasy place that you would like to live so finding out what you are out of the four is a big first step and then you can use that as a platform to describe fantasy so you could say you know i would say so what would a taker do in this situation so it's almost like a, a second degree of separation Mm. so you can talk from like a third party well i think a taker might have a fantasy like you know they would walk into the kitchen and they would see their partner cooking and they would just be like pants down this is happening get down on your knees you know it's gonna do this in the kitchen and they'll kind of walk through and be like yeah yeah taker probably would like something like that now what would what would an allower like what would that fantasy look like so it's helping them kind of create these fantasies from that other platform so they can communicate it in an effective way it's so amazing you went in this direction um because i was literally just about to ask you before we did, you know, we, we talk about love languages, you know, right? The five love languages, yeah, the five language, love languages, and how powerful that is. And I was just about to ask you, are there sex languages? And you answered before I could even get it out there. So we're vibing already, which is fantastic. Yeah, the four, I would say, yeah. The, so the four, like, let's just go through those again. You've got the giver, so yeah. the giver, the receiver, the taker, and the allower. Yeah. Is there somewhere people could go to explore more about those those schemes? Um, I would say if they check out BettyMartin.com, which yeah. is her website, she has a bunch of videos on there, and they're all free. Okay. And she talks about the wheel of consent. She's the one who develops kind of the core fundamental four. She talks about it from a how do you communicate stance. So if you are wanting to give, what does that look like in your um, partnership? And then she goes to kind of an outer layer of a darker um, area, which is with regards to consent. Like if you're not consenting or we're talking about rape or sexual abuse, what does that look like within the schemas? So it's not quite on the same line, but I think it's a good kind of base to understanding. Because a lot of people in our community are probably familiar with the, the love languages and, you know, love languages has been really helpful for a lot of people to help them understand how to communicate to their partner right. 
you know, in a way that is required to get through. So I, I guess it's important to, for people to understand, like just because they may not necessarily be the, the perfect puzzle piece for one another, that doesn't necessarily mean their relationship is doomed. No, and oftentimes couples that are amazing outside the bedroom, you know, like they're the people that kind of make them want to barf because they're just so adorable and cute and smoopy all the time. And you just think that they have the world's perfect marriage and relationship. Inside the bedroom, often they don't click. Whereas um, sometimes couples that are very arguing and heated and throwing plates at each other's head 24-7, you're like, oh gosh, that they should obviously get divorced. They're horrible together. Inside the bedroom, they often have amazing chemistry. So it's kind of that. So that's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. That is a thing. So the more charge there is in a relationship, obviously the greater potential for conflict, but also the greater potential for you know higher levels of sexual satisfaction? Yeah. Like again, it goes to things like attachment theory. If we're talking about attachment theory, if, if you know that this is a wonderful, secure attachment with you and your partner and you're loving and smoky and wonderful, it's sometimes it can be hard to want that, you know, it's already secure. But now this person over here, like we talk about women, for instance, this man is treating them horribly and calling them names and not calling them back and just being a general jackass and she can't be enough. Why is that? Well, if you're constantly trying to reattach to something to create a form or to create a bond, you know, over and over again. So this person's mean to you and then you kind of push, oh, you don't want me. And then they give you a little, oh, but if I can just reattach and have great sex, then we can bond again. You do want me and kind of the highs and lows of that can create that chemistry. So is that healthy? No. Okay, no, no. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't strive for those relationships. It's just help to understand, understand why it's them. in place. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And again, I'm very much simplifying attachment yeah. theory yeah, and yeah. as a whole modality. It's good. You're doing a great job. Um, but yes. Um, so it's looking at that. So it's oftentimes if couples come in and they're like, we just don't have sex. Like, I love my partner, but our, our sex life is just horrible. Often it's that their schemas are not aligned. Um, so it's just looking at, okay, how can I migrate to this schema for a little bit while? And how can you migrate to this one? so that we can have a complimentary one and you know maybe I get my schema this week and then maybe next week I you know migrate to a different one and I feed your schema so that they're each getting kind of pleasure and they're clicking in certain different capacities so you've got plenty of references to to know that you know e- even if people have two very you know disparate schemas that they yeah. can come together and enjoy a healthy sexual relationship for sure as long as they're both able to understand the schemas, know where they fit, and then have the desire to move to a different schema for their partner's satisfaction. If they're stuck in one and have no desire to move or find it way too uncomfortable, yeah. or, then that obviously can create problems in creating good chemistry. Okay. that's I've I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. That's um, So what would you say are the most common challenges people face when it comes to sex and sexual pleasure? I would say for men, it is living up to that you need to get an erection in three seconds. You need to keep the erection. It needs to be rock solid and hard. You need to last for X amount of time. You need to give your partner orgasms and then eventually ejaculate. So kind of like the narrative that has been created for men, I think is very difficult. And out of that stems things like erectile dysfunction that comes from things like performance anxiety, yeah. even though there might not be a biological issue at play. Um, so I think that's probably the most common for men that I see. For women, it's mostly low libido. Like they're coming in and thinking, that they're broken because they don't have the desire Um, or there's some kind of pain in place vaginismus dyspareunia vulvodynia that's occurring and they're not sure why so unearthing that um, is important and couples differences in libido uh, one almost always has a higher libido than the other even if they're matched in the beginning just life and stress will create mismatch over time here and there Um, and then troubles communicating around sex and sexuality fantasy life but then you get the whole gamut 
lot of uh, poly couples, open relationships, um, uh, those sorts of things. So I see a lot of people in that kind of realm yeah. as well as BDSM, kink, fetishism to, uh, yeah. Now there's an, I've done, like, uh, I've got a relative that's uh, polyamorous and yeah. I've also explored polyamory just out of personal interest uh, and I found it to be quite uh, an intriguing space mm. uh, because for, for some people who live in that space, they say it is the most, you know, uh, psychologically liberating place that you can be mm. where that you have this, you know, there's no unhealthy attachments and, right. you know, you're getting your needs met from different people and there's no unhealthy expectations. Um, yet the reality that I've seen in so many situations is a lot of chaos, you know. Yes. I'm not saying there's never any, right. you know, really healthy polyamorous relationships. I'm sure there are plenty that are driving the cause and, but I've, you know, I just seem to have witnessed a lot more couples that are polyamorous in challenge mm. because of the circumstances versus in liberation because they have lost all the attachments to this, uh, you know, to the, the, the model of how they think a relationship should be. Right. I definitely agree. I okay. think there's a small percentage of people that can experience compersion. So compersion is like literally feeling joy, happiness, over watching your partner have joy, happiness, love, connection, great sex with someone else. So that literally feeds you on a happiness level to watch that. I think it's a very small percentage of the population that actually feels true compersion. Right. Even though we might all strive for that. Yeah. Um, it's harder, I think, to feel the compersion within a sexual romantic sense versus I'm so happy my partner just got that promotion is doing so well, <laughs> right? It's a completely different realm to experience. So small percentage there. I yeah. think it's a, a continuum. Because the concept's very attractive like, oh, I, yeah. I, like I read this book it was an incredible book it was called The Ethical Slut Ethical Slut yeah. great book I was, and I was like wow this sounds so attractive and I, I was really conscious of what it was bringing up for me internally like it was yeah. bringing up a lot of stuff you know a lot of trust issues a lot of yeah. judgment um, but I did look at some of what I was reading in, in that book and other books and I was like wow you know what that does sound like a state of you know enlightened sexuality that mm-hmm. you know really is aspirational uh, and is that what it is for many people it's aspirational and if they don't have that what you refer to as a, what did you say? That compersion. Is it something that that not everyone can attain? Is it something that you're perhaps born with? Like, yeah, I think some people are just more naturally kind of predisposed to experience compersion because I've had couples that come in and they're like, I'm just so excited for my partner and they're going on this date and this, you know, they had this wonderful experience and like their ounce of jealousy is like minus 10. Like for me then to fathom that there's nothing going on there is difficult for, you know, to listen to. And then there's other people that... I think that's just the thought of their partner even, you know, going out for dinner with somebody is just enough to enrage them. So, yeah, I think it's a continuum on where that lies. I think poly relationships, open relationships, um, the whole gamut, whether you're talking about swinging or what have you, uh, we call it ethical non-monogamy now is like a broad umbrella term. Right. I think ethical. Ethical non-monogamy. Ethical non-monogamy, right. Yeah. So I think if you're going into that lifestyle because both partners genuinely want to do that, you have a much higher chance of success, regardless if you experience compersion or not. All right. It's usually when one partner really wants to do it and the other one is kind of like, I guess maybe I don't want to lose you. So or the relationship isn't great. So maybe we'll try and dip our feet in this realm. That's usually when things don't work right. out. Yeah. Both have to be pretty stoked on the process yeah. for it to. I think because it could be quite so destructive in, in the wrong context. Oh, yeah. 
an amazing communication. You cannot yeah. be have an open relationship that is successful without honest, transparent communication. Do That's some, just make do some break. people seek out Polly as a, almost like a panacea or a band-aid because okay, our relationship isn't working. You know, we love each other dearly. You know, maybe this. Yeah. Like, is that something that people you know just throw in there in the mix just to see? Definitely, it's usually kind of a last-ditch effort. Right. Yeah, and then usually nine times out of mid ten, in my opinion, yeah. that's not successful. Okay. So, so sex is almost like diet. You know, there is you know, there's so many different. Fuck it, excuse me, fads, uh, yeah. you know, perspectives, you know, fat makes you fat, fat makes you thin, <laughs> you know, go keto, uh, sugar's bad for you. But how do you, how would you define, and I know this is going to be, you know, contextually related and it's not, it's not going to be necessarily a one size fits all, but how would you define uh, a, se- a healthy sex life? Hmm. I think a he- healthy sex life is one where you feel physically and emotionally satisfied and that you feel heard and respected um, within your relationship and you feel like you have the capacity um, or ability to say what you need or want or set boundaries and know that those boundaries will be respected. Um, I think if all of those are in place, then it doesn't matter if you're vanilla sex in the missionary position with the lights off or you're doing, you know, hardcore kink. It doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. No. So how important is is chemistry in a relation or charge? Because you know, one of the things I've observed in talking with clients, and also you know, from my own experience, you know, there are some partners that you're with that provide enormous levels of charge, mm-hmm. and the sex is incredible, but it doesn't feel safe mm-hmm. because of the instability, you know, of where that charge comes from. You know, arguing, right. fighting, you know, the threat of abandonment and bits and pieces that can move in. Yet there are other relationships that that people have where perhaps the chemistry and the charge isn't as strong, but there's a a really strong feeling of security and safety, Mm -hmm. you know, and and love and and caring. So if if someone's like identified this, like, is there... A, a perfect way to execute when it comes to finding the ideal partner, when it comes to not just who you want to be with and feel safe with, but right. also have long-term, you know, sexual um, compatibility with. Right. I think that's the age-old question because yeah. some people go for one, you know, dynamic and other people pendulum swing the other way because of what's important to them. Yeah. It's just like choosing a partner in real life. Is it important that your partner makes so much money or that they're going to stay home with the kids or that they, you know, like your in-laws or everyone kind of chooses, you know, where they're going to settle, I think. Yeah. I think having the perfect of both worlds is more so a rarity. It doesn't mean you can't have amazing sex with someone that you trust and, you know, but I think again when we talk about, you know, libido and drive, that honeymoon spark stage over yeah. time in every relationship is going to diminish. It doesn't matter how amazing or how much chemistry you had in the beginning. So it takes constant work to have a good sex life with passion and anyone who tells you different is selling you something. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about the honeymoon period, because obviously that's something that everyone, right. and that's where obviously love addiction is very, you know, enmeshed into the whole process of yeah. starting something new. Like oh, I'm in love, drug. you know, yeah. I'm high, I'm high as a kite. Um, is, is it something that we should allow ourselves to be swept away with, you know, when we're in a new relationship? Or is it something that we should, you know, manage like a substance whereby we become conscious of the fact that we're perhaps in an altered state mm. and we should, you know, use some tools to regulate so that perhaps we don't build unrealistic expectations around the situation that we're in so that we can actually form a healthy bond long term. Right. Yeah, we call it the pedestal effect, right? Yeah. You get into a relationship, you put them on the pedestal because you project yeah. all of those things onto them of like, you're this and you're that because these are the things that I need. So I'm just going to throw up on them. (laughs) 
all over you, and that's, of course, what you are. And you put them on this pedestal, and then over time, the butterflies and the honeymoon, and they yeah. fall from the pedestal, and you're like, oh, you're mm. actually not everything I checked on you. That was my shit. Yeah. yeah. So I think ongoing therapy is important to realize what you're projecting onto a partner, especially if you have attachment issues in general, yeah. um, or you feel like you're getting into bad relationships over and over again, like someone that's like, oh, I constantly pick the woman that walks all over me, or I constantly pick men that are unavailable, or mm. I'm like, that's a sign that you need to seek out therapy to find out why that pattern is reoccurring for you so that you don't get swept up into that honeymoon love, you know, drug stage and be like, well, this is wonderful and this time will be different. Is it different? Because maybe you need to analyze that and how is that pattern falling? Because if it's not a healthy pattern, then yes, you need to still consciously aware of what is happening so you don't get drawn and sucked into it. Yeah. But if you have healthy attachment style and, you know, you're older now, you kind of know what you want in a partner and those sorts of things, I think, oh, there's hardly anything that's more wonderful than the love drug stage. Okay. In my opinion. Yeah, wow. Look, yeah. I think there'd be many people who would be cheering to agree. And in, in, in the entrepreneurial world, we call it the, uh, the uninformed optimist stage, uh, the honeymoon period. And we actually say that that's what's required when people get into business, because if, if they weren't all high on, a, on this, uh, this excitement and adrenaline that they can conquer the world, if they actually could foresee the challenges that they were actually getting themselves into by starting a business, right. there's a high probability they wouldn't fucking start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. Uh, and I often think, you know, this is Mother Nature's way of ensuring that we, you know, we continue to propagate by, you know, getting us completely blindsided and high, you know, yeah. on the endorphins and the chemical responses so that we can, you know, it does increase the likelihood of us, uh, you know, lasting a little bit longer on this, on this planet. Um, but I was going to ask you a fucking great question. It's a really good question and it's now slipped my mind because I fucking waffled on a little bit no, more. No, no, that's okay. I do think, I agree, the evolutionary perspective is a big part of it. Yeah. And I know you read The Ethical Slut. Did you read Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan? No, should I? You'd like that one, yeah. Sex at Dawn. Sex at Dawn. I mean, as far as ethical non-monogamy goes, um, Opening Up is a great book and yeah. More Than Two is a great book okay. as well, like How to Navigate the Waters. But Sex at Dawn kind of looks at it from like an evolutionary perspective. Right. It challenges um, Charles Darwin. It, it can be very clinical. Okay, I'm already reading into sex at dawn because I'm assuming because men wake up with an erection. So there's right, got to be something. testosterone peaks in the morning. Yeah. yeah. No, not necessarily no? to do that. No, okay. so sex at dawn is alluding to the fact if, if we look back in our you know history as a, as a species, yeah. what is occurring from the advent of agriculture and how that affects how we control female sexuality to men wanting to spread their seed to all of these sorts of things. And he, they challenge it from a very like clinical scientific kind of viewpoint. Anyway, I think you'll, you'll you'll enjoy okay. that book. I like it already. <laughs> so um, I remembered my question okay, now. Good. Uh, and again, asking a therapist this question is always going to sound like it's loaded. But how important is um, therapy for couples, regardless of you know whether it's a regardless of their situation? Right. Yeah. So I may be biased, of course, um, but I think that everyone should have therapy, whether it's individual or couples therapy, because I think it's just personal growth work. Um, that's important to not be ignorant and uh, yeah, and evolve as a human being. Yeah. I think with couples, very crucial because often couples wait until it's too late. Yeah. So they're like, this is our last effort. We really kind of just want to get divorced, but we'll go to therapy to say we did it. And we'll put in like, you know, three or four sessions and then be like, oh, we tried, didn't work. It's kind of like, it our best. we gave it our best, yeah. you know, it's it's like that's not really how that's supposed to go. It's when you start to have uh, a perpetual problem that's reoccurring in the relationship or something you feel stuck in yeah. that you haven't been able to communicate on or a negative cycle is kind of developing, go to a therapist right away because then they can tackle it right in the beginning before yeah. it evolves into such a big massive thing that it's so difficult to untangle and work on the resentment and the anger and everything else. So very, very important, I think, couples counseling. I agree. Like I've been doing therapy for over 20 years. I'm a massive advocate for therapy. I think 
everyone should have a therapist regardless of their situation. Definitely. Specifically pointing to, you know, regardless of whether you're in pain or, or you've got problems or not, everyone should be, mm -hmm. well, I believe everyone should have a focus on growth. And the amount of growth that we can achieve by having the opportunity to speak to someone is incredible. Yeah. But the challenge for a lot of people is how do I choose the right therapist? Because, right. you know, it's, it's like any expert, uh, but therapy is that really sensitive area. And I've, you know, I've, I feel blessed that I've, you know, I've had a lot of different therapists for a lot of different reasons and right. most of it's been out of exploration. Mm. But what I've also found is, you know, oftentimes you can occasionally get therapists that are in the industry because they're healing their own wounds. Uh, and yes. oftentimes that's, you know, oftentimes we're here to teach what we, we're here to teach what we're here, we're here to teach what we, we teach what we're here to learn the most. Right. Right. But one of the challenges I've seen for myself, and it's, it's only rare, but it comes into the selection process, is how do we choose a therapist that is actually going to be helping us yes. not achieve our goals, not necessarily help them achieve theirs? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, because it totally makes sense. That's a great question. I, you know, we'll have deep discussions and you'll be, you know, I'll be halfway through the conversation, I'll have a level of awareness. I'm like, wow, this is one big projection right now. Like, I actually yeah. don't feel like we're talking about me. I can me. see what's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. can actually see what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. And I think for someone who was perhaps unconscious to, to that scenario or who wasn't even aware of what even projection is in, in, in a situation like that, right. it could be potentially setting them up to not necessarily get the best outcome from, from therapy. Mm -hmm. So in your world, how, what, how do you think is the best way for someone to go about finding the right therapist for them? That is a really good question. I would say seeking out someone that does consults. So like there's a woman in Vancouver, for instance, Constance and Hummel, and she does uh, like maybe one or two phone sessions, for instance, or even in-person sessions where you would go and you would say, okay, so this is kind of my shit. This is or where I want to work, what I want to work on, or, you know, where I think my blind spots might be or those sorts of things. And after a session or two, she's like, all right, this is what I think you need to do. I think you need to go see an EMDR specialist for this etc. trauma. I think you need to do this for this meditation piece. I think you need to see this therapist who specializes in anxiety. I think you need to. And then they kind of lay it out and think, I think this is the best therapeutic modality for you. Right. Here are some suggestions of therapists that do that. By no means do you have to see those. Yeah. And then you can put more research into, well, how do I find a great EMDR therapist in Vancouver that I might click with? Yeah. Because apparently this is something I might need to do. And then you would see maybe one or two or even three until you find that therapeutic kind of alliance where it kind of just feels right. And then stick with that therapist for a bit but don't just flip through the yellow pages and because there's so many different modalities yeah. and I think as we evolve as well we evolve into different clicking with different therapists yeah. like I started with a therapist that um was an EFT focus, so emotionally focused therapist. You know, how does that it's make you feel? And, yeah. yeah, and those sorts of things, which was wonderful and exactly what I needed at the time. Yeah. But then after a while, we kind of reach a plateau. Yeah. I'm like, mm, I don't know I if I'm really making exactly. Yeah. So then I moved to a CBT therapist, cognitive behavioral therapy, and that worked fantastic for a while. And then I'm like, mm, plateau. Then I'm moving to like an existential therapist. Okay, now we're like going into a, like a macro for a micro level and all those sorts of things. And that's what I needed when I felt like I was being stagnant. So Have I think you seen people. Was, have I seen what? I Heart Huckabee. I haven't. Is oh it a good movie? Oh, my God. You must. Because you, you said the words ex existential therapist, and I was like, you've got to see I Heart Huckabee. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll put that it. on my Sorry, must watch list. No, no, that's okay. Destroy a tangent there. But I think that that's exactly it. So don't just find the first therapist and hope that it's so going to work. your cue is just uh, t try a few until you find someone that feels right. Yeah, that you make you feel like you're making progress yeah. with. And it's not that you in one session or two sessions you should just, you know, miraculously have light bulb moments and change and become a new human. Obviously, therapy takes time, which is very important to understand and know. But yes, after, you know, a handful of sessions, do you feel like they understand you? Do you feel like you're making progress personally? All of these things. If the answer is not necessarily yes or wonderfully, then maybe you need to seek out a new therapist or a new therapist with a different modality. 
Okay, that's cool. So um, we're talking about evolution. We're talking about as we grow and you know, needing different types of therapy um, and, and different types of people to, to, to help us with the practice. But when it comes to our sexual experiences, how do our sexual experiences change with age? Mm. Are there different phases that we go through? Right. Yeah. I would say yes to say that in your 20s this happens or in your 30s this happens because, again, the normality stick. Eh. Well, um, one of the normality sticks that you hear thrown around is, you know, women don't reach their sexual peak, peak until they're right. 32 and men at 17. And it's right. like, well, fuck, we're destined not to connect <laughs> you know, if, we're, if, we're age appro- if we're dating age appropriately. Right, you know? right. I think part of that is myth. Yes, women can have, you know, higher drives or libidos at different stages of their life depending on what's going on for them right. with regards to menopause or birth control or have they finally now felt better about their body and themselves so now they have more confidence to go out and ask for what they want versus trying to be the performer that they were in their teens or whatever it may be, right? So yes, there's some truth, some kind of fiction to that. So yeah, I think people do change as they get older. I think for men, it's more so um, how the body is responding. Um, specifically, are they able to get an erection as quickly as they could when they were younger? Are they able to keep it? Um, those sorts of things can drastically affect the dynamic of what is happening within a sexual encounter and their manhood and how they attached to that yeah. is such a massive thing. Um, so yeah, I think that as you get older, that definitely. Do our orgasms change as we age? They definitely can right. for sure. Yeah. Especially like we talk about pelvic floor muscles and the importance of doing Kegel exercises. A lot of people think they're just for women. They are not. They're for men and women and important for both to do. Well, actually in Tantra, the practice is for men and women for, you know, for abstaining from ejaculation for men. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And keeping those muscles strong, your pubococcygeal muscles or our PC muscles and the effect of the strength of those muscles have not just of our control over ejaculation, but those are the muscles that are contracting when we have an orgasm. So if those are weak, our orgasms are going to be weaker. Um, so wow. It's, yeah. Okay, that I didn't know. So the stronger the PC muscle, the stronger the orgasm. Can be, yes. Can be. Yes, okay. can be if the muscles are very I can, weak. I can just hear the keyboards like racing right now as people, <laughs> men around the world are Googling how to, how to improve our PC muscles as men. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and important for things like just incontinence or like... Yeah. For women, like uterine prolapse, like there's just so much going on there that it's important to keep those strong. So what is the difference for men and women when it comes to reaching orgasm? You know, because I guess for some for some men, you know, can be literally, you know, a feather touch, mm-hmm. you know, on their penis and kapow, you know, and for others, you know, they might be having sex for an hour before they even get close. And for women, you know, they, they either don't or it's penile penetration or it's clitoral only or it's right. a combination of both. So fundamentally, is there a difference when it comes to achieving orgasm for a man and a woman is is it fundamentally quite different i don't know i think in the in the early stages it can be easier for a man to achieve an orgasm right when you're in your you know youth and yeah. preteens and whatever else it can be more difficult it can take women longer to figure out how to reach orgasm i would say so i think there's a difference in that in the initial stages but then i think once a woman understands yeah. how to achieve an orgasm then as far as like length and how to get there and those sorts of things it can be I think all over the map because a lot of men have delayed ejaculation where it takes them forever to reach orgasm and some women can you know pound off 60 orgasms within 30 minutes and only takes them 30 seconds to get there so there's a a wide array there is this is true yeah 
This is true. Why do you think there is a? It seems to be. This is an assumption again, but it, there seems to be a natural um, for men. It seems to be quite a natural progression for them to start exploring their body mm. and you know masturbating. You know, in, in their youth, you know, in, in their early teens. Right. But for women, based on what we know about, you know, right. the, the, so many not achieving orgasm, is it not as natural for women to start exploring their body in their early teens as it is or appears to be for men? And is that driven by hormone response? I don't think it's necessarily a biological thing. I think it's more so a societal thing. Right. It's the boys will be boys right. kind of aspect of it. Like, oh, men should play and men have jerk circles and they do these sorts of things and they talk about penises and like this is just, you know, and women it's like, oh, that's, you need to be ladylike and close your legs and not discuss that and right. you get slut shamed and those sorts of things. So I think it's more how a society views uh, women's sexuality or the control right. of okay. women's sexuality rather than a biological function. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense sense yeah um sexual transmutation is it a concept you're familiar with mm, i've heard of it before okay okay so napoleon hill um i don't know if you're familiar with him he wrote a book called think and grow rich he wrote a number of books okay. um he spent 27 years of his life writing that book uh, and he interviewed 500 of the wealthiest men in the world at that time he was good friends with a guy called andrew carnegie who in the early 1900s was the wealthiest man on the in on well one of the top wealthiest men on the planet yeah up there with john d rockefeller and um he met a guy um napoleon hill who said look i want to research wealth and i want to find out you know what are the traits what are the keys to wealth so he spent right. 20 it was supposed to be like a three-year project ended up going over 27 years oh, gosh. he interviewed 500 of the wealthiest people in the world at that time and identified 13 traits that they all had okay. not one or two of them all of them um, and chapter 11 is titled sex the, the mystery of sex transmutation hmm. where he actually discovered that the the wealthiest men at that time because at that time it was the wealth was all men it was right. all masculine <laughs> But he discovered that they all had very high sex drives. Yeah. But the distinguishing feature was that these men had learnt, you know, the, the, the quote is, um, uh, any man or woman, had, I added the all woman part, that has the discipline to focus sexual energy onto things other than the act itself will be able to create wealth beyond their wildest dreams and access mm. the realms of genius. Okay. Now, Tantra, you know, they've talked about for a very long time, you know, accessing supernatural capabilities, superhuman capabilities, and accessing, you know, different spiritual realms with the channeling of sexual energy. Yeah. you know, in different directions. But it's not a concept that is traditionally used in business where we learn that sexual right. energy, you know, it's a very powerful procreative force, has the yes. power to, you know, essentially encapsulate a soul and bring a soul into this world. Right. But a lot of people don't see the relationship between sexual drive mm. and actual drive, like the mm. ability to go out and, you know, conquer in an entrepreneurial world right. as a man or a woman. Right. So I'm just curious if you've identified through your own experience that, you know, people who tend to have, you know, higher sex drives that ha with a healthy level of focus mm -hmm. seem to have an almost unfair advantage or a power or an air about them. Mm. Is that something you've noticed? That's a really interesting question. I have noticed that oftentimes if somebody is, let's say, a really high-powered CEO managing millions of dollars, those sorts of things, or they have a job that maybe their life is on the line, they work for the police force or those sorts of things, kind of on a fairly regular basis. Um, so more of the alpha male, I yes. guess, characteristic, if I could describe it. Um, 
oftentimes they will pendulum swing the opposite way and be a sub in the bedroom, I've noticed. So almost like I, I, I trying to find balance in life. So if I'm yeah, right. always this, then in the bedroom, I would like to just click the off button and be this. And that's for women as well. Sometimes if women are very like, you know, career focused, yeah. hear me roar kind of woman, often in the bedroom, she wants to be dominated and be more of a sub. So I've noticed that pattern. Okay. I'm not saying these men he interviewed fall into that exact category, but I would say that's something that comes up quite regularly. Well, let me ask you a different question. Do you see sexual energy as a powerful creative force? Oh, for sure. Yes, for a man and a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And it can come across in a vast variety of different ways from like confidence yeah. to our aura to how we're projecting. Um, confidence is the sexiest quality in any person, man or woman. But how that comes across, whether it's confidence in business yeah. or in sex or whatever it may be, right? But yes, definitely. And do you see sexual energy as also a powerfully destructive force? Of course. Yeah. Yes. So the balance is there. Of course. Yes. Anything that's good for you can be horrible for you. Yeah. Yeah. The balance. Well, it's interesting because Napoleon, you know, he refers to the to the to you know to that situation where sexual energy has just as much power to create success, but it has the same amount of power to be destructive if it's projected in the wrong area or if it leaks into unhealthy relationships. Oh, definitely. Like there's there's a lot of trying to find research on like sex addiction, for instance, or porn addiction. People that become so obsessed with um, getting that or that feeling that occurs from after sex that it becomes kind of an obsession. But uh, porn addiction or sex addiction is currently not in the DSM, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But uh, so it's quite a debatable topic at the moment. Sex addiction? Like that's still being debated as to whether or not it's an addiction? Yeah. Whether we can call it an addiction or not. Um, It's not in the DSM. shocking to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of therapists are very split one way or the other. Centers in Asia that are full to the brims with you know kids who have social media addictions, internet addictions, you know gaming addictions. Yeah. Yet we're not looking at sex seriously in the Western world as something that is quite addictive when we understand the chemical, the biochemical components of what that actually is. Yes, yes, the psych realm is very split. Yeah. It is very heated debate at the moment. Some people are very 100% it is, and some people are like that's an atrocity. There's no way it's not an addiction. So papers are coming out regularly on it, trying to prove one direction or the other. Now, I know this will sound like a loaded question, and it probably is, but it's not meant to be. How important is sexual health when it comes to personal success in life? Hmm. I guess it does define how you define success. If you're defining success as being independent, being able to pay your bills, being a wealthy entrepreneur, then maybe it's not that important. If you're defining success as having healthy relationships, romantic or otherwise, then probably much more important. So I think it's the definition of success maybe for that question. Okay, I like that. You know, I talk a lot about um, uh, sex transmutation and how it's used in the business realm. So for me, I talk very openly about sex and I, I'm very much like you. I love to broach areas mm-hmm. and topics of conversation that make people really uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, um, I think one of my most favorite questions I used to like asking, and I know, actually, I'm not even going to know, I'm not going to go there. Oh, come on! Oh. Well, one of the questions that I used to really like asking um, when I was dating and I have to start wrapping my head around the, the, the reality. I'm going to have to start dating again at some point again. But when I used to date, because sexuality is a big part of my life, like I'm a very right. sensual man, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my sexuality, but I always used to spring on the first date, like I'd be having a conversation with a girl and just randomly pop out there. So when was the last time you had a mind-blowing orgasm? And it was almost like a litmus test. You know, right. first of all, you know, A, did they spit their drink out? Right. <laughs> how did they respond? B, the did they, you know, was there any kind of flushing? And, and right. C, like how did they feel about actually, you know, talking about their sexuality? Right. Because for 
for some people, you know, it is, is really quite still a, a taboo subject and, yeah. you know, even you know, in this day and age. But a lot of our listeners, uh, some of our listeners actually have children and a question, you know, that might be a great question to ask someone on a first date, mm. but um, it's not necessarily the, 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 the most appropriate way to introduce it, you know, if we're talking to our kids perhaps, mm. you know, and you try to, you know, help explore with your children, you know, what where they are in, the, in terms of their sexual journey, but also how to educate them. And we right. talked about how the sex ed is, you know, quite screwed up. So how do we integrate topics such as sex and masturbation, you know, when it comes to doing it in a healthy way when we're talking about it with our kids and Mm. perhaps teenagers? I think it's important to use proper terminology and from a very young age when we start saying things like, oh, you're you're a little pee-pee or, you know, you're no-no place or you're a little cooch or whatever you want to call it. We get nicknames. What is that teaching our children from a very young age? You don't Mm. call your elbow something else. You don't have a nickname for your ears and ears and ear. So when we start to slowly change, oh, but these body parts are different and different for different reasons, it already kind of gives an air of like there's something different here there's a stigma or well, I shouldn't even right. speak it you know I should just talk about that's my no-no wow. place as opposed yeah. to like you know and then proper education it's not all a vagina the vagina is the inside part what's on the outside it's your vulva where's your clitoris you should know that from a very young age well I mean very young obviously within each yeah. age group there is you know um, appropriate education that should be done so I think just body parts and stuff in general right. um, so coming at it from like a, a very practical, almost clinical place to begin with. And then it can progress up and the importance of pleasure and respect and boundaries and all that stuff, as opposed to just birds and bees. And well, it's funny you should say that because my sex ed from my dad was basically, okay, so there's a penis and I have my index finger protruding and then there's a <laughs> vagina and I'm making a fist over here. And he goes, basically that, and that was, I remember I was, was on a Saturday ed. evening whilst he was cooking spaghetti. Uh, and it took a whole matter of, you know, maybe two minutes for him oh. to, to run me through it. Um, and yeah, and I'd already read the book. Where did I come from? So I had right. a, a little bit of an <laughs> idea. Yeah, I kind of yeah. knew, but uh, yeah, but it was. It's interesting to hear the, the words to hear you say using the appropriate words to label the body parts that we're talking about. Because I didn't even make the connection between oh, if I don't use the word that it is, then maybe there's something. You know, we're, we're trying to we're trying to hide something here. Right. So that's that's actually quite a big distinguishing feature when it comes to communication. It is, yeah. And I think, especially for women, like tons of women, I, I when I talk to, they didn't, even, they don't even know, like what an inner labia is, or the vulva, or a clitoral hood, and how that differs from their clit, or why, uh, what the difference between a clitoral hood or like a foreskin is, and men and women, and how that works. And I'm like, that is just basic biology that we need to be teaching from, you know, early on, versus figuring that out when you're. 35 because you can't figure out why you can't have a clit orgasm. It's because you either don't know what it is or you're trying to focus on the wrong area of the clit or you don't even know the purpose of the hood or like all of these things should just be like bare minimum out of the gates in my opinion. Anyway, yeah. So there's one area that I didn't go before we wind up, start to wind up, which was um, the female ejaculation. Uh It's something that's obviously getting a lot more notoriety and it's getting a lot more focus now obviously with the advent of pornography and and internet. Uh, And it's, you know, for some men it's like the holy grail. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like, oh my God, look at what I did. Mm-hmm. You know, for others, there's literally this fear of, you know, oh my God, like what what did I do? Right. And for women, you know, when when I've discussed it with women as well, it's almost very similar. Like for some women that do experience female ejaculation, some of them are like they're they're, they're like almost ashamed, almost mm-hmm. embarrassed, and others, you know, they just see it as a normal part of their life. Right. What is the female ejaculation? And what we'll start with that. What is the female is ejaculation? It? Yeah. Well, there's two different kinds of uh, ejaculate that women typically produce. So there's low volume high volume. So a low volume ejaculate is usually more of like a milky, cloudy kind of um, color. And as the 
name applies, it's low volume. Um, it usually is helped just typically with lubrication kind of aspect um, and skein's glands that usually produce it. And then there's a high volume ejaculate. And uh, what they found when they did a bunch of tests, because everyone says it's pee, it's urine, whatever it may be. So they did a test where they would put a catheter inside of a woman that they knew was uh, able to ejaculate, and they would have the woman uh, reach climax. And what they found is it was um, kind of diluted urine, um, but more produced and stored by the kidneys. So the kidneys would produce it, and then the bladder would store it or hold it. So very, very, very diluted urine, but yeah. it's high ejaculate kind of, um, uh, and it's not necessarily to help with lubrication, lubrication, but as a, I've just reached orgasm kind of click. So when you said that some men like love it, oftentimes there's that thing like, is she faking it? I don't really know. Well, if a woman is squirting across the room, she's probably not faking it. It's a good indicator. So I think a lot of men like it for that. They yeah. know like, I, I got the I job got done. The, like, that was the yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I think it can be a good indicator. That yeah. being said, not all women ejaculate. So it's not. Can all women ejaculate? Is it a process that can be learned? That is the age old question. I'm a firm believer that anything can happen if you set your mind to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it should be that bar where it equates to success. So if you I'm not able to do that. Against it. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of women try for years and aren't able to necessarily achieve that. Where some women that's just happening, like you say, and they're embarrassed and they don't want it to happen. Like they don't have control over the fact yeah. that it is. So. Is there a higher level of intensity for an orgasm that is, where there's ejaculate present to, to that level of degree? Like, is there a more intense? Is it. Is it, a, uh, is it a better orgasm? Right. Well, we talk to women and women definitely experience different forms of orgasms, higher and lower and stronger and more powerful. So women that do have uh, or do ejaculate can say that the orgasms can be more powerful. That being said, it's not, well, my G-spot orgasm created it, but my clit orgasm didn't. Some women, like, it doesn't matter where they are reaching orgasm, ejaculate will happen. So to say that one is more powerful than the other, I don't know. It's all a matter of personal perspective. Yeah, yeah I guess, subjective, I think, yeah. So, um, superhuman sex is, is something that, um, I think is an important part of life. Like, and to me, superhuman is just exploring our own potential at the highest level. Uh, I think you've added an enormous amount of value in a very short period of time, but I'm curious to know a little bit more about you. What do you love most about empowering others to connect with their sexual self? Oh, so what do I get kind of out of the yeah. job? What is my favorite kind of part of it? Um, actually, do you mind if I ask you a question before sure. that? Yeah. Like, uh, have you connected with what you why you do what you do. Like there are so many different aspects of psychology that you could have moved into. You moved into sexual, you know, to the sexual therapy, you know, you you clearly, there was an interest there, but what is it that this gives you that uh, you you don't see yourself getting somewhere else? Hmm. I think it's almost, I'm not sure if it's that I'm impatient, but it's almost like a, a, a quick fix that you can see that you're making a difference in split second moments. So I find like in psychology, doing therapy with people, like I said, it could be months mm. of doing therapy before they have an aha or a light bulb moment, or they've really started to change or shift their life for the better. Or it could be a short moment in time, of course. But I find like with sex therapy, a lot of it is around education. You see a lot more light bulb moments. You see a lot more like change happening in quick amounts of time. So I tend to be like a solution focused kind of short term therapy 
therapy yeah. um, kind of therapist. So oftentimes like within that. one to three sessions, you can see someone completely turn around and do a, a 180. So I think I get a little bit of a high yeah. out of that, like, oh, you know, in one session, look what we accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like, yeah. I just had the picture of the man and the female ejaculate. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. look what we did. Look it's so exciting. Did. So I think I get a little bit of something out of that in short periods of time, I guess. Is Look, I, and I like that. I really do. Because, you know, I've studied psychology for a very long time. A, a range of different methodologies and mo- modalities. And, you know, there are some therapies that are almost become, they're almost presented to become addictions themselves. Yeah. You know, where it's just like, well, it's ongoing treatment. It's going to take the rest of your life. And it's just like, well, you know, this totally. is almost like I'm just replacing one for something else. Yeah. And I really respect and appreciate, you know, the therapists that really do have the attitude that change can happen a lot quicker, you know, and there yeah. are modalities and methodologies that we can use that can transform people's perspectives quite rapidly. Definitely. That in some cases, you know, it can be a small shift psychologically, but can have huge ramifications, you know, physiologically, you know, the health, oh, yeah. sexuality in, in many areas of your life. You're getting a few kicks in the Yeah, in the I know. She's, she's going she's, strong she's, on this she's, one. Yeah, she's yeah. enjoying the conversation. <laughs> well, that's good. She'll be a, a very um, healthy young girl. But yeah, I think I really, I really like that. And I like education in general. Yeah. Like I just, I love teaching and, you know, going to school sometimes and do pro bono work and do like sex ed for like the grade eight or grade nine boys and kind of thing like that. And just seeing the questions that come out or, you know, because a lot of times they act tough, like they know everything, but then you see something and then you kind of see like, oh, really? That's a thing? Like I didn't, I didn't know that. I love those moments of education. So I think the sex therapy kind of plays out into that. And especially too, when somebody comes to you and they're completely shattered and think that there's no hope for them and they've tried everything. And then you're like, oh, here's, here's our one session and go home and do these exercises and that'll be completely like premature ejaculations is somewhat of an easy fix and telling a man that that's you've been suffering with this and silence and has so much shame attached to it after one session being like oh yeah come back in a month we'll be good it won't be an issue anymore it's just like the weight that you feel like the energy that you feel just like lifting off of them like this, the gratitude i think that that definitely that's feeds nice. me there does gratitude play a big role in your life i think so definitely yeah. i think it should the more gratitude we have, the happier we are, the more appreciative, the less we focus on first world problems, yeah. those sorts of things. But I also think there's, um, and again, because I love to hack things, right? I like yeah. to always look for performance. But one of the things I love about gratitude, apart from the state that it puts us in and you know the, the philosophical and psychological benefits, the biochemical benefits are actually quite mm. incredible as well. Like Definitely. when we're in a state of gratitude, it naturally raises our DHEA levels, yeah. you know, which in, to combat cortisol is the perfect antidote yeah. that gives us you know, a much better perspective to be able to, you know, reset and see things in, in, in perspective not in a jaded view of an emotional you know burst in, in that moment yeah so um you're doing work right now with westland academy i am tell yes. me more about that what's yeah. that all about so uh i noticed in this profession there wasn't a lot of people that would call themselves sex therapists or that maybe do but maybe don't have the training to actually help work with people with specific sexuality based issues so a colleague of mine um we co-founded the westland academy of clinical sex therapy so basically, it's like an online training program for mental health and healthcare professionals, whether you're a nurse, a doctor, or a therapist, to go somewhere to find applicable, valid information on a sexuality-based issue. And when I say issue, it could be anything from uh, GPPD, so genital pelvic pain disorder, to something more broad like uh, BDSM and kink, for instance. And they can get this knowledge base online and learn how to work effectively with their clients in whatever setting that they have. Um, to help improve because the, just that knowledge is especially in Canada it's just wow. not out there we don't have any well, training I think that's a global issue you know if totally. I'm honest 
And where can um, people, like therapists that might be listening, where would they find more information about that? Uh, Westland Academy. Um, if they just type in westlandacademy.com, it'll right. come up right away for our Fantastic. website. Yeah. And if there was one question, like obviously, you know, I've seen a number of your interviews now um, to get to know a little bit about you before you came in here. And you've, I'm sure you've been no, asked no. Uh, a million different questions. I've seen a few different hairstyles. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I think I was blonde with bangs at one point. Yeah, yeah you had the bangs yeah, straight. Yeah, I did. Uh, but what is one question that perhaps I didn't ask you that I should have asked you because it's such a powerful question and the benefits that people receive from the answer is so profound that we should share that information. Wow, isn't that a good question? What is one question you should have asked me? Um, hmm. I don't know. This has been a great interview. I can't think of anything that I would throw out there that I think is important. Okay. Well, listen, while you, maybe while you think okay, of that, I'll ask okay. you one more question. Okay. Um, but okay. if there was one thing that you could suggest to people, that if there was one right next step that someone could take to embark on the journey to have superhuman sex, mm. like what would be the best piece of advice that would be general in nature but applicable to everyone? Hmm. Good question. Um, I would say looking internally, like we talk about evolution and those sorts of things, like self-evolution, um, looking internally to find out really where you lie as far as um, your fantasies, your desires, what you're getting out of uh, your sex life. So a lot of people are like, yeah, it's good. It's all right. It's, you know, does the job. It's pleasurable sometimes. But like, are you really connecting with the core of actually what you want? Like, for instance, looking at your fantasies, for instance, and what those are feeding, um, can drastically make or break your sex life kind of moving forward, especially in long-term relationships. Like I usually give the example of um, a couple that came in and the, the wife had found the man masturbating. Um, to porn and she was appalled and I don't agree with porn and you're cheating on me and you shouldn't be looking at those women and kind of like that um, no. uh, yeah. yeah anyway so they come in for the therapy and she's basically like you need to fix him he's broken he's perverted yada yada okay but now all of that which are issues in and of themselves um, just in the shame attached to all of that but just looking at what okay what was he actually watching what was he getting outside of the relationship that he wasn't getting inside of the relationship what was that so he'd be like oh walk me through some of the fantasies of what that like porn story would be so he would say all right let's say an example i'm a realtor and uh i'm showing gonna show this house to a couple so i walk into the house before they arrive make sure it's all good and i walk into the backyard and there's a pool and there's two naked women swimming in the pool like i didn't know they were gonna be there they're just there and then uh, somehow i hate can, that when that happens i know it's just, <laughs> just, <laughs> totally wrecks a monday um and then you're like oh they somehow convince me to have sex with them but uh the entire time i'm thinking oh my gosh this couple could arrive at any moment and this is happening and so when we start to break down the roots of what he's actually looking for one is you know surprise. He wasn't expecting something to happen and it happened. The second is that he was submissive in a literal and physical way. So the women were the aggressors in it and kind of making it happen and his hands were tied literally and figuratively during the process. So he was playing, you know, what was his schema kind of in that yeah. role. And the third one is that he could get caught at any time that something could happen, someone could walk in. And those were kind of like the core three wow. that fed throughout most of his fantasies or yeah. most of the porn that he was searching online. So she was focused 
on the like, well, he likes the big, tall, blonde women with fake boobs. And she's like a four foot three Filipino flat chested. And she's like, I'm never going to look like that. Um, there's something wrong. It's like, no, well, that's like we need to go deeper into the layers of the onion. That's very surface. Um, that is mainstream porn, the, the women with the fake boobs and the whatever. What is he actually looking for? So if we can take out those roots and we can implant them in his sex life with his wife, that would drastically improve. And the chances that he would be going externally start to decrease, right? Not that there's anything wrong with masturbating or those sorts of things, obviously. Yeah. But so I guess very long-winded response. No, this is good would be like really taking some time to analyze what are those roots for you. Yeah. Because often we're just like, oh yeah, that's my go-to or I enjoy that. Or yeah. why do you enjoy that? What is the root of what is occurring there that you're seeking out that type of fulfillment? Can you communicate that in a healthy way and get that within your relationship? Because that will just feed it on so many levels, right? Wow. That yeah. was that was an aha for me. There was a little was light it? bulb. Yeah, there was oh, a little yeah? light bulb in there for me. Oh cool. Yeah, that was fantastic. Good. Yeah, Good. I, I really enjoyed that answer. That was fantastic. Good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it has been, like, I have to tell you, like I find, I, I love intelligent individuals and you are wickedly smart and Aww. that carries with it a huge level of attraction. So Ditto. this has been an incredible interview. Uh, Tisha, I, I can't say anything other than thank you. Tisha Morgan, for, for those of you who want to find out more about Tisha, Google Tisha Morgan, T-W-E-S-H-E. A Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, Tisha Morgan.com, yeah. uh, sexual therapist here in Vancouver. You are headed for the stars. You are headed Aww. big places, Very I can tell. Very sweet. Thank you so much for, for your time today. My pleasure. You were a great interviewer. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's only my second one. Really? <laughs> yeah. Ah, it's like yeah, you've been it. doing this for years. Oh, I, feel like, I feel like fucking Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Just fall right into yeah. it. Yeah. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray.